Zechariah chapter 9. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant of our God, for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpets and march forth in in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them, as the flock of his people For like the jewels of a crown, he shall shine on his land. How great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Amen. Let's pray. Father, once again, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to enable us to uh, meditate well on the words before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to do is, uh, we're between series, so we finished Hosea last time, and um, I'm not quite sure what we're doing next, but we'll we'll find something. (laughs) There's a big Bible to get into. Um, But I I just wanted to to look at half a verse this evening, verse 17, for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Um, it's vital for us in God's world, as God's people living in a fallen world, to have an increasingly 
enlarged view of who God is. Uh, to see the wonderful beauty and goodness of God and to focus on him uh, and for him to be our source of health and strength and encouragement and all these things. And that's what I want to do uh, this evening. Let me just fill in a little bit of the background to Zechariah. Zechariah is a a few hundred years, a couple hundred years later than Hosea. probably written around 500 BC, um, 15 to 20 years after the temple has been rebuilt under Ezra. So you read the book of Ezra and you can discover how you know, people came back from captivity to Jerusalem and began to rebuild the temple. And uh, Nehemiah comes back as well and, and starts uh, rebuilding the, the city. Um, so there's a big building pro, pro, uh, program going on. But one of the things that happens in Ezra is that uh, the people become somewhat disillusioned and uh, discouraged and kind of fed up. There's apathy um, and disillusion that set in. And at that time, there's a need for a word from the Lord. So the, the Lord needs to come and speak to his apathetic, sad people. And, uh, and here it comes through Zechariah. And, and this chapter divides into... Um, uh, a number of sections. So verses 1 to 8, uh, the Lord is portrayed as a, a divine warrior coming to fight the battles um, and uh, to fight against the, the nations. And uh, if you pay attention to the history of the time, um, it correlates very closely with um, the, you know, the battles that were fought with uh, Alexander the Great, remember, in the 4th century. Uh, he swept southwards and then before sweeping eastwards uh, to go into parts of India. And uh, he destroyed Tyre and Sidon. He raised great siege works against Tyre and Sidon, the seaside uh, cities. Uh, so, but the Lord is saying, I'm going to come as a warrior uh, against the nations. And then we see in verses 9 and 10, the, the coming king. And uh, as I said, this is, uh, you may recognize verse 9, the prophecy about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, but humbly on a donkey. Not in glory yet, but humbly on a donkey. Uh, And uh, so it's a humble coming of a king. And then uh, there's a section on the the freedom of the people of God in verses 11 to 13. And you'll notice that the, the, the importance of the blood of my covenant, you know, the the crucial thing about the freedom of the people is the blood of this covenant that's going to be, going to be shed uh, for the people in verse 11. And finally, there's the ultimate and full salvation of the people of God in verses 14 through to 17. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful picture. Uh, the Lord appearing over them, his arrow going forth with lightning and so on. Uh, a marvelous picture of the saving work of God that's anticipated in the book of Zechariah. Well, I want to just focus on, as I said, on verse 17, the first part, for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Um, and I think this is referring to God himself, although there are some, some translations sometimes make it look, sound as though it's, it's referring to Israel. But even if it is Israel, where does that beauty and goodness come from? It doesn't come from them, <laughs> but it comes from God, their relationship to God, and their covenant relationship with him. And all, all, so all beauty, all goodness comes from God. And that's what I want just to think about this evening, is um, 
the, the goodness of God. Uh, he is the reason why everything that is said in verses 14 to 16 comes to pass. That he marches before them, that he protects them and defeats their enemies, that he will save them as his own flock in verse 16, that he will make them shine like jewels in the crown uh, in his land, and so on. Uh, And it's all because of his great beauty and goodness, the goodness and beauty of God. And that's what I want to think with you about. So, So three things. Uh, First of all, let's think about the goodness of God. Secondly, let's think about the beauty of God. And thirdly, where these qualities can be found today. So first of all, God's goodness. The goodness of God. And immediately when you say that, you you perhaps recognize that we're, we're sort of up against a problem. Because the word good is a kind of undervalued word. It doesn't sound that great. Something's good. Yeah, it's quite good. <laughs> you, know, you can play it down somewhat as being good. And you always need to kind of embellish it with something else. Uh, some other adjective. Uh, but what do we mean by goodness? When we, when we say something is good, we, we usually mean something like something that contributes to our well-being in some way. So if something's good for us, It makes something in our lives better. And equally, if something is bad or evil, it's something that does damage to us in some way or other. And so we long for good things in our lives, and uh, we don't want bad things. And our desires as human beings are tied up with what we perceive to be good. We want good things. And of course, what we, could, what, we per, uh, what we perceive to be good can be, become messed up and ruined. Uh, you know, one person can look at um, the Grand Canyon in the United States and look out over this amazing panorama. I don't know if anybody has ever been. I haven't been, but I've seen pictures. And uh, you look at this amazing panorama and you say, that's so good. And then somebody else might say, that's just a, a ditch in the ground. <laughs> and it's ugly. I remember once uh, uh, there was a young guy I knew in the church we were in before, before I was a minister. And uh, uh, he was needing some help with something. So I decided to meet up with him. And we, we went for a walk just in the, the hills around the village where Susan and I stayed. And uh, there comes a point where you can you come up to the top of a hill and you can look out and you see over the city of Derby and uh, see, see quite far. And the and it was a beautiful day, and, I, and we, got, we stopped at the top of the hill. And you should, what you should know about this guy is uh, he spent all his time on computers. He just spent all his time coding, doing stuff on his computer. And, uh, you know, it was his job. It was his pastime. Everything he did was on the computer. And uh, as we stood on top of this hill, and he was, he was panting away because he wasn't used to going outside very often. And I said, isn't that amazing? And look out across the panorama that we could see on this beautiful day. And he said, what is? <laughs> I said, the view. <laughs> can you see it? And, uh, you know, some people can be kind of messed up about what, what is good. I'm not saying everything I think of is good is good. But, you know, um, it, people can get messed up about what they perceive to be good. Because they're, they become kind of twisted a little bit. 
And, uh, you know, it's, it's worse for us today, today because we live in a society that increasingly calls evil good and good evil. And so things that people call out as being good are often not good at all. And uh, things that people call evil uh, are actually very good. Uh, increasingly, people are saying that Christians are perceived to be evil. Because we have a particular view of the world, of God who made it, and what is right and what is wrong, and people say, well, that's evil. That's messed up. So that's one of the effects, you see, of, uh, of the condition that affects all human beings, that sin has corrupted us and enabled us uh, uh, not to see clearly what is actually uh, good. And the most important pe- thing that people cannot see is that there is an ultimate good. And that ultimate good is found in God himself. That he is absolutely good. It's not just that he does things that are good. It's not simply that he has qualities that show themselves to be good. He is in himself good. Fundamentally Good. By definition, he is good. He is absolutely good. And so, you may remember that Jesus says to the rich young ruler, in, for example, Mark 18, uh, 10, 18, he says, no one is good except God alone. Only God is good. And that's a reference to that fundamental goodness that's in God. And therefore, he is the, the giver of every good gift. Uh, so we... Uh, that came up in our prayer this morning, our opening prayer. Um, J- James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. His goodness does not change. Uh, there is no variation. There's no shadow due to change. Nothing changes about his goodness or anything else of his attributes, for that matter. Uh, he is truly good at all times and all true good things Truly good things come from him. So when something truly good comes into your life, you don't, you don't need to look very far to see where it's come from. It comes from God alone, who is the fount of all goodness. And we can fill our hearts with gratitude to him uh, because we know his goodness will never change. Everything good comes from God. Now, it's sin that stops us seeing this in God. The flesh wants to deceive us into thinking that good is found elsewhere. Or the devil wants to deceive us and say, go and look at these good things over here instead. Or the fallen world around us is always saying to us, come on, look at this good thing over here, rather than turn to God. And it's always trying to tell us that uh, the good is found when we try to get for ourselves whatever it is we desire without reference to God. When you understand that God is good, that's impossible to do. But that's what the world tries to do to us. It says, try and satisfy your desires and find what is good without God. Simply follow your desires, push God away. But... The trouble with that is, 
it always disappoints. Life is like that. It always disappoints. It always leads you to that disturbing conclusion that forms the undercurrent, if you like, of people's lives. That as the song goes, you know, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. This is the disappointment of the world that tries to offer its goodness. But the person who has received God, who has not pushed him away, but has actually sought to close with him by faith, and seek him out, and find that rest in him, discovers that he is good and satisfies the soul. Uh, Psalm 4, verse 6. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. When you come to God... There is more joy, there is more goodness to be found in God than all the grain and wine, all the things that the world offers. uh, All of that is is nothing compared to the goodness that you discover in God. Psalm 4, verses 6 and 7. Well, how is this goodness seen? Let me just suggest a few areas, and it's not an exhaustive list by any means. But let me mention four things. First of all, his love. His love. And there's, of course, a general love to all. Um, uh, So Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, He, God, makes his, his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Uh, You know, the rain falls on everybody. (laughs) Um, But it's the part of the benevolence of God, the goodness of God, that uh, is... Uh, is present for everyone. Everyone can experience the goodness of God in that sense, that limited sense. Uh, it's also the basis upon which we love our enemies uh, because God has shown some love to them. He is, he is good to all in that sense, that general sense. But there is a special love to God's own people in his covenant making, in his promise making uh, to them. And so his His covenant love is demonstrated to us in the extent to which he is willing to go to redeem his people. And that's ultimately for us seen in the cross. We see the extent to which God is willing to go uh, to redeem his people. How do I know that God really does love me? By looking at the cross and seeing Jesus who died on that cross. God demonstrates his love for us in this while we're still sinners. Christ died for us. Demonstrates his love. Secondly, his goodness is shown in his mercy. Mankind, of course, is in a a state of of misery um, and sadness. And I don't just mean that there are large parts of the population um, of the world for which life is a grind and difficult, which it is. But more importantly, the real plight of all human beings uh, is that they're separated from God and left to themselves and subject to his condemnation because of their sin. So that's what we mean by a state of misery for all human beings. And it is a miserable state to be in. Even if you don't recognize it, that's the state people are in. But mercy is all about God not giving us what we actually deserve, and instead uh, giving us what we don't deserve. It's 
it's, and God is, is tender and kind in his goodness and mercy so that the psalmist can say, he drew me up out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock. God is good to, to people who are in the misery of this life and he lifts you out of the muck and the mire of life and he puts you on the rock and saves you. This is the goodness and mercy of God. Third thing is the, the patience of God. Um, in other words, he is able to put off the passing of that sentence which your sin deserves. So I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when you sin and God r- rightly condemns you, he can condemn you there and then when you sin. Immediately you sin. And he could carry out his judgment immediately. There wouldn't be any of us left. You know. <laughs> but you know, he could do that. But he doesn't. Because he's patient. He waits. He gives time for repentance and turning again to God. And so as the Lord said to Moses, hidden in the cleft of the rock as he passed by. Remember that story in Exodus 34? Uh, the Lord declares as, as he passes by Moses, who's hidden in the rock. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Slow to anger. This is our God. He is so patient. He waits and he waits and he waits. And then third, fourthly, uh, he is good in his grace. So mercy is about not giving us what we do deserve, but grace is about God giving us what we don't deserve. All the goodness of eternal life and heaven with him. And of course there is, there is that general grace, common grace to all and the sun rises on the evil and the good alike and so on. But there is this particular grace and favor that comes, uh, that is seen in all its power and depth, that is through the saving work that's been done on our behalf. Um, and that's what's encapsulated, I think, in, in verses 14 to 16. That it's all of God, the saving work is all of God. That's People do not save themselves, but God has to save. God has to show his grace and as, along with his mercy. And it's true in the Old Testament, and it's gloriously true in the New Testament. Uh, Romans 8.28, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That grace, giving you all things. Romans 8.32 so God is the great giver for those who don't deserve it. And thereby his goodness is seen by all, is displayed for all to see. Well, let me move on now to, from his goodness to his beauty. How great is his beauty? And the word for beauty here is actually a really rare word in the Bible, for God, used of God in the Bible. It's used of other things in the Bible, but it's very rarely used of God, except here. And, uh, you know, when we think of God, we often think in terms of his glory, his splendor, um, 
and how such things would cause our jaws to drop if we were to see all of it. But this Hebrew word is quite specific. How great is his beauty? How great is his beauty? And the fact that it's so rare is what draws our attention to it if we're paying attention. He is beautiful. Now, what, what is it and how does it apply to God? I think it's, it's kind of like the Spirit. You know, you, you can't see the Spirit, but you can see the effects of the Spirit. But beauty is kind of like that as well. You, you know, um, yeah, beauty has an effect on people. It has an effect when, when it turns up. Beauty draws our attention. It elicits our imagination. It, um, it even draws out adoration, maybe even desire uh, from our hearts. Beauty has that effect on people. Beauty can cause conversation to stop in a room when all eyes are drawn to it. Beauty can cause animated conversation when it's gone. Beauty has caused wars. Remember the famous story of Helen of Troy in Greek mythology, the face that launched a thousand ships. It was a chips there. Ships. <laughs> Beauty captivates hearts. Beauty stimulates people to pursue it and so on and so on. Beauty has that effect on people. How much more so than of God if he is ultimate beauty. If there's such a thing as beauty in the world, then it is by his design that he has made things to be appreciated by us. But how much more is he beautiful in himself? That he is our beautiful God for whom mankind is made to be in fellowship with. And I want to suggest to you that perhaps that is something that may be missing from our, our, our Christian lives. That maybe you're here this evening and you have lost sight of the fact that God is truly beautiful. That uh, therefore you are not animated by the thought of him or in your devotions, or in your discipleship, or in your service. You're maybe animated about any other set of motives, but beauty of the Lord? Is that what motivates you and drives you to serve him? But as you read the pages of scripture, you cannot but get a sense of the desire that the people of God uh, have to be in the presence of this beauty. Uh, One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm, Psalm 27 uh, the writer says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I, will, uh, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You see, David has this desire to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And further on in Psalm 27, he says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the lands of the living. Or think of Job in all his suffering. Remember Job had everything taken away from him, including his health, and he was left sitting in a pile scraping his skin and most awful afflicted, afflict, the skin afflictions that he had to bear. And he says in Job chapter 19, verse 26, 
And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. Glorious. Even in all his suffering, he is saying, my heart faints because I want to see him. I want to see him. And we have this expectation as well in the New Testament. One of the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Or John speaking about God's coming. When he comes, we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3, verse 2. You see, friends, there is a hope that we have that we shall one day behold the beauty of the Lord. In all its fullness. It will be an utterly captivating experience. One that animates us to joyful and devoted service for him. In the new heavens and the new earth. And just because he. All because he is so beautiful. And it fills us with adoration. And when you're filled with adoration. You'll do anything for somebody you, you adore. The beauty of the Lord. But that's not only just for the future. We can experience it now. That's what the psalmist speaks of in Psalm 27. That with all the God-given tools that were available to him, the temple, the worship, uh, and so on, he wants to be there to, to use all these things, those symbols and pictures, language that God has given him, to say, I can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I can find a way to look upon him. And if that's the case then, so 3,000 years ago, David said these things. In the old covenant administration. How much more is that true today in the new covenant administration? When Jesus Christ has come. I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Which brings us to the final point. Where does this, is this beauty and goodness to be found today? So we find this beauty not simply in, in temples or other symbols of the, old, of the old covenant. But we see that beauty and goodness in the fulfillment of all of those old covenant symbols and typology. We see it in Jesus Christ. We see it in Jesus the Messiah. That's what they all point to. And so if you want to see, begin to see the beauty of God, you need to start looking at Jesus Christ. See, that was anticipated even in the old covenant. So Psalm 45, verse 2 that we sang earlier. You, the king, are the most handsome. And the word there, handsome, is that same word, beautiful, that's used of God in Zechariah 9, 17. You are the most beautiful of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Jesus Christ is beautiful. Or think of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 33, 17. Your eyes will behold a king in his beauty. See, it's in Christ we see this beauty. Isn't the, the vision that John saw at the beginning of Revelation a beautiful one? Remember what he said? Let me read it to you. John is in the spirit. He's praying. And he sees Jesus Christ. And he says, And in the midst of the lampstands, 
One like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And his right hand, in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And, the, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Friends, I rather think that this expectation of seeing God, which Matthew speaks of in his Beatitudes or John in his letter, is going to be fulfilled as we look with our created eyes at this Jesus Christ in all his glory, in all his majestic glory. And we are going to be taken and captivated by the image that we see in front of us. It's going to be him. And we can see beauty in him, uh, in himself, in his character and being, he is the perfect man, the most loving, kind, patient, good person that there has ever been, the most faithful friend, gentle in all his dealings with us. We can also see the beauty of the Lord in his works. And this is demonstrated for us in Zechariah chapter 9, the great work of salvation which is described. And, and then through the exultant cry at the end, how great is his goodness, how great is his beauty. And if it's true then, 500 years before Christ, how much more true is it now? As we see the provision of, that God has made in giving us his one and only son. How we need God to come into our lives so that we may see his beauty. How we, we need to put aside all distractions and look in the places where we know that his beauty can be found. How we need to cultivate a desire to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord using the means that he has given to us. The beauty and the goodness of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for these words which in many ways are so simple and yet could easily wash over us. But how we thank you that you are our good and beautiful God. We pray that you would give us an ever-increasing appreciation of that beauty and goodness, that our hearts would be drawn and captivated by the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.